Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 228, and today's guest is Sarah Zukolsky, co-founder and managing partner of Recast Capital. For this podcast, I've interviewed lots of venture capitalists who talk about their portfolio of investments in companies, but where does this capital come from? When a VC firm announces its latest fund, whether it's $100 million or a billion, who is providing this capital? Well, it's typically pension funds, university endowment funds, family offices, or high net worth individuals. The investors in these funds are called limited partners, or LPs for short, and they are the end client for a VC that is ultimately expecting a return on the capital that has been allocated to a fund. Thus, I was really excited to speak with Sarah, who has a lot of experience in the venture industry as an LP, and her current firm, Recast Capital, is a fund of funds, meaning she has raised her own fund that in return provides capital to VC firms. The firm's strategy is to invest in and empower emerging managers in venture with a focus on diverse partnerships. The goal of the firm is to provide exceptional returns by investing in diverse emerging venture managers. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the important question, is the VC industry making progress in terms of having more diversity? Sarah's educational background and her experience joining an early stage startup and how her career progressed over this period of time, how Sarah transitioned into the investment side of the equation and her experience at CNF Investments and Greenspring Associates, what led Sarah and her co-founder and managing partner, Courtney McRae, down the path of starting Recast Capital and how they go about making investments into VC funds, details on how the VC industry works and how to get a venture capital fund started, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at just $79 a month. Plus, you can get 10% off select packages by using our code FIZ20 at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Sarah. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because uh, we're going to talk about your firm, Recast Capital, which is uh, hopefully going to be making some massive ways in the ways that uh, VC firms are thinking and how they're allocating their capital. So we're going to talk a lot about your firm. But before we get into that, there's something that's on the top of mind for everybody as it should be, and that's diversity. Whether it's hiring for a tech company or the firms that are investing and in making these capital investments into startups, like are those uh, teams diverse, right? So um, there's noise, there seems to be some progress, which is good. So are we finally making that progress? Like, is there more diversity that we're seeing in the VC firms themselves? Um, yeah, it's a very important issue. Um, and unfortunately, while there's been some progress, uh, that progress is woefully small, uh, almost disappointing, really. Uh, while we've seen kind of increases in kind of the broad diversity of the venture workforce, uh, the, the percentage of underrepresented minorities in kind of the investment partnership in venture firms has remained fairly flat. Um, and you have specifically in 2020, the percentage of investment partners that were female um, only went up 2%, so from 14 to 16%. 
Uh, for Black investment partners, it was actually flat, unfortunately. And for Hispanic investment partners, it only went up 1% from 3 to 4%. So nowhere near where it needs to be. Um, and unfortunately, from the entrepreneur's perspective, from the founder's perspective, it's still woefully small. Um, in fact, for women, it actually went down in 2020. Um, yeah, right, exactly. Wow. Um, shocking. And it is shocking. It is shocking. Um, so percentage of venture dollars that went to women in 2020 was only 2.3%. Um, so we have a lot of work to do. Um, the good news is, though, that folks are now tracking these stats, which is you know, kind of the first step, right? Um, so we're looking at them more closely. And from there, we can begin to make even more progress. I think um, many institutional investors believe the data that shows that it's more diverse venture partnerships, as well as more diverse founding teams of uh, startups that outperform. And so there has been heightened focus here. Um, and with that kind of third-party data validating why we should be spending time here, you're getting more attention, which is which is certainly an important first step, but we are nowhere near where we need to be. All right. Well, I guess the heightened visibility will hopefully make these firms more accountable for their own hiring for their own firm and promoting people into the partnership or hiring within the partnership, as well as the, the portfolio companies that they're investing in. So at least uh, you know, that awareness will hopefully have long-term benefits, even though today we still have a lot of work to do. Hopefully that work is uh, going to pay off eventually because uh, it needs to happen. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's rewind the clock. Uh, let's talk about your background. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? Right. So I actually grew up in Minnesota. Um, I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. Um, my parents ran a family business that my father inherited from his father, who started it when he and my grandmother immigrated to the U.S. from Germany with my father and my uncle when they were only when they were very young, only a few years old. Um, and as you know, my my father had the benefit of inheriting that business, but it's been a lot of hard work. All right, and many family businesses, it's it's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of family dinners where business is discussed. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really saw kind of the hustle and, and grit that my parents needed in order to succeed there. Um, what kind of business was it? Uh, a giftwares business, actually, um, and kind of a wholesaler. And, you know, that taught me a lot about what it takes to be successful. But, what it, but from my parents' perspective, um, they did not graduate from college and they, have, as a result, always really focused on education. They didn't want it to be so difficult. They were in a fortunate position to have that family business, right? Not many are, um, but they wanted us to do more. And uh, as a result, you know, education was a huge focus for us. And um, for me, it was really math and science that I was drawn to the most. Um, and so, um, you know, spent a great deal of my time focused in those areas as I was growing up. And then you went on to pursue that academically. So you studied, uh, I think it was mechanical engineering at George Washington University. It was, yeah. Um, I actually started as an aerospace engineer, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, I was fascinated okay. with space, yes. Wanted to build spaceships um, and ended up uh, changing to mechanical just because I felt at the time as I was getting more and more exposed to all the really interesting careers you could have with an engineering degree, I felt that that kind of opened up my aperture for opportunity while keeping kind of that aerospace uh, opportunity at perhaps, you know, something that I could still pursue if, if that's where we landed. 
Um, but it was, you know, great decision because I kind of started thinking more about where I wanted to spend my time. And it turns out that I became very interested in kind of energy broadly. So what did you do after you graduated? Cause that's, that was a perfect segue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I actually joined a venture-backed startup out of undergrad. Um, we, it was a, a company that was very early. I was a third person hired full-time. Um, I was, you know, really drawn to the company's mission. I was very impactful. Uh, the company provided rapidly deployable renewable energy solutions to the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. So helping our armed forces reduce their reliance on diesel fuel. Um, so a great, great way for me to really, you know, learn a lot, but also um, leverage my my skills to really hopefully move the needle for our customers. So how did you get connected with this company? So third employee, right? It's not like they're on campus, you know, recruiting, right. like, you know, major right. companies do. Yeah. Yeah. I actually started as an intern my senior year. Um, there was a posting that I found as I was trying to figure out you know, what I, where I wanted to spend my time um, my senior year. And and I felt that this was a great way for me to kind of get my feet wet. And little did I know that it would evolve into an actual career. I was actually with that business for quite some time. So um, it was a great, great decision for me for that internship, for sure. Yeah. So how, what did you start off doing? And then how did your career progress? And kind of how did that, you know, because I've always, I've always been an advocate for joining startups and it can be different phases of a startup, right? I say that broadly speaking, but I always let people know that even though there may be that risk element, uh, which I would argue there's a risk for joining five Fortune 500 companies too. But um, what you're doing is you're making yourself more marketable in the long run based on what you're going to have the opportunity to achieve within a startup. So over that stretch of time, like what were the different roles that you held and kind of you know evolution of your career there? Sure. Yeah. So I was actually with the company for just under eight years. I started as a project engineer and over time was a project manager and then director of engineering and director of product management. Um, you know, I agree with you that working for um, startups is an amazing way to begin your career or at any stage of your career, really, just because of the experiences you get. Um, you know, I was, I was thrown into a lot of different opportunities, um, learned a lot of lessons the hard way, certainly, but worked with a team that, you know, allowed everyone to really roll up their sleeves. And um, so I learned a tremendous amount, just a tremendous amount, um, took on, you know, more managerial responsibilities over time and, and really kind of found my, my areas of, of not only interest, but certainly expertise as I grew within that company. Um, and, you know, at, at about when it was time for me to kind of think about my next, my next move, um, you know, and reflecting on my experiences there, I often joke that it feels like dog years, right? Like almost eight years, it actually feels like two or three times that amount, given the, the amount of experience you take from it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, because you did have so many different roles and the company eventually, like, so over the time you were there, it grew to like how many employees and so we were we were a design firm and we outsourced all of our manufacturing. So it, it remained a fairly modest size, um, but it was an amazing way for us to kind of interface not only with, uh, of course, the suppliers and and how uh, we built the systems and could improve the systems over time. But it also allowed me the flexibility to kind of work very closely with the customers and determine what it is that they um, really needed from us. So uh, wonderful, wonderful opportunity certainly. So what did you do next? So I ended up um, you know, thinking through where I wanted to take my career. I loved startup operations. I thought I would stay in startup operations forever. Uh, but very candidly, um, you know, I was operating a director level at a startup. 
but I wasn't sure that, you know, given my age and my gender that I'd be taken seriously at another firm at the same level. Um, you know, I, I worked with a great team where I was and they certainly knew what I was capable of. Um, but you know, finding that in other areas can be, can be difficult. So that's actually what spurred me to pursue my MBA. Um, I, for better or worse, I thought, hey, you know, another another piece of paper might uh, help bolster my position and, and help me kind of get where I wanted to go on the operations side. So you went to Georgetown for your MBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you still kept within the entrepreneurial circles, right? So you were uh, part of the entrepreneurship club, part of the energy and clean tech club. Uh, so so what's the entrepreneurial vibe? I mean, I know this is, you know, not last year, but like, what's the vibe at Georgetown as far as entrepreneurship and, you know, the MBA program? Yeah, wonderful. Honestly, wonderful. Uh, and I remain very involved there today. I've, I've been an entrepreneurial advisor at Georgetown ever since I graduated uh, after my MBA. Um, to your point, I got very involved in a number of student organizations focused on the entrepreneurial ecosystem. The clubs you mentioned, uh, there was also a, a group called Insight that provided kind of uh, free consulting to venture-backed startups in the local area. Um, I got involved in what's called the Venture Capital Investment Competition or VCIC, which I was um, fortunate to be a part of one of the international championship teams, which was just a really fun experience um, for me, which really kind of whet my appetite for venture broadly. Um, but I didn't really, in my mind, really pivot my thought on where I wanted to take my career and, and really look to investing specifically until um, I actually did a fellowship with Foundation Capital. It's called the Young Entrepreneurs Program, where um, you essentially work as an early stage scout in your local area alongside a handful of graduate students across the country. And it was entirely bit by the book, right? Um, you know, fell in love with the idea of a career in venture as a way to support multiple companies as opposed to just one as an operator. Uh, and from there, I was I was hooked. Yeah, and Foundation Capital, if people aren't familiar with that firm, so we'll talk a little bit about the firm there. Sure. So Foundation is a you know multi billion dollar venture capital firm located on the West Coast, um, and started this um, program YEP far before I joined. And in fact, there had been a, a few students, um, at least a handful, I believe, that that had. Um, participated in this program in in years before, so I was very very lucky to win the win the honor of supporting them through um, through this this program at Georgetown to represent our school. Um, but it's a you know obviously a wonderful way for them to have eyes and ears on the ground to see really interesting um, companies that are coming out of institutions um, academic institutions across the country. Got it. All right. So what did you do next as far as you know you kind of got the the bug of the investment side. So so how did you end up pursuing that? So I ended up pursuing opportunities um, in venture specifically. And um, I was lucky to join uh, CNF Investments, which is the investment arm affiliated with the Clark family of Clark Construction Group. Uh, I was one of a four-person investment team focused exclusively on venture and private equity opportunities, investing in both funds and companies. So an amazing place to, to learn and to grow, see a wide range of investment opportunities. Um, unfortunately, while I was there, though, the patriarch of the family passed, and, and with that set off a bit of a strategic shift within the organization, um, which is what brought me to my next role, which was Greenspring Associates. Greenspring Associates is the you know, largest venture-only platform in the world, uh, investing in both funds and companies on both a primary and secondary basis, have a wide range of products on their, on their platform. Um, while I was there, I ended up spending the bulk of my time on the fund side of the house, um, where I, I supported uh, strategies such as their 
um, the flagship fund that the firm was founded on, investing in the blue chip names that, that we'd all recognize, um, the micro strategy backing managers raising um, typically more modest fund sizes, and then an, an impact initiative that certainly was returns first, but um, theme-based. And you know, throughout my entire time on the investment side of the house, and, and quite frankly, even as a, on the operating side, um, you know, became more and more aware over time the diversity challenges within the industry, right? And having seen it from a few different vantage points, uh, it's prevalent everywhere. And um, as time went on, I became more and more um, passionate about the subject and came to a point where I just really wanted to spend 100% of my time focused on the intersection of venture and diversity and, and how I could move the needle. And that's what bring, brings me to my most recent role, which is uh, Recast. Very cool. So with Recast, um, it makes sense. So you were already an LP, so it makes sense as to why you can start a firm like you have. Because if, like, I think it's also helpful for our audience, like, a lot of people understand how the venture industry works, but not everybody. So just to educate people, like, you know, if this venture firm raises half a billion dollars, a billion dollars, a hundred million dollars, like that has to come from somewhere. Right. So if I think we just need to make, you know, make sure that people understand the whole process of how that VC firm raises that fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we could talk about how you're, you're a little bit different. So uh, broadly speaking, like how, like what, what's an LP and how does that relate in the venture industry? Sure. So uh, an LP or a limited partner are those entities that are investing in venture capital funds. Um, they take many different forms, d- different shapes, sizes, right? They range from high net worth individuals, uh, family offices, pensions, endowments, foundations. It's a very wide range um, and everything in between, frankly. And oftentimes they are you know, building out their own diversified portfolios and venture exposure is one part of their portfolio. And they will invest either directly into venture funds or invest via intermediaries such as fund of funds. Okay. So, and that's where you sit, the fund of funds. Correct. Yes. Um, so uh, Recast itself um, on our platform, we do have a fund investment strategy, which is our uh, a fund of funds. Yes. So with Recast, talk about, um, you know, how it got started, uh, how you met your, your partner, Courtney, uh, just getting it going, and then kind of the, more about the mission involved. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, my, my kind of career was evolving into, you know, how can I support diversity in venture? And um, my, the, the more time I spent thinking through kind of the more efficient ways to address the problem, the more I found that, you know, I believed deeply in the power that capital allocators have in transforming the industry, um, but also in how the diversity of the venture teams that you support also impacts the industry. So by that, I mean, as we look at venture partnerships today um, in the emerging manager set, so those raising new funds today, which tend to be, you know, kind of smaller fund sizes and certainly more earlier fund iterations, those partnerships tend to be far more diverse than those of, of some of the established firms. And by focusing exclusively on emerging managers, it became very clear that, you know, you're backing more diverse partnerships, which in turn means that, more diverse founders will receive capital, right? Because you know, typically it's more diverse GPs that back more diverse um, founders of companies. 
And so, you know, for me, the solution seemed, okay, let's, let's create a strategy where you can focus exclusively on those emerging managers to really enable a path to greater diversity. Um, but taking that one step further, it's an, through a returns first means. And by that, I mean, um, you know, coupled with the data that shows that more diverse venture partnerships out, per, excuse me, more diverse um, GPs are backing more diverse founders, you also see that it's more diverse partnerships that are outperforming, right? And so by focusing here, you are not sacrificing returns in any way, shape, or form. This is not a concessionary strategy. I'm not doing this um, just out of the goodness of my heart, right? It's that by doing so, you're actually creating and, and generating the returns that people are actually looking for from their venture portfolio. Um, so it was around the same time that I was kind of massaging what this could look like. Um, I was reintroduced to my partner, Courtney McRae. Um, Courtney and I have been in one another's orbits for some time. Uh, we're both Kaufman Fellows. We both worked at kind of established kind of venture fund of funds. Um, but it was a mutual friend of ours that kind of reconnected us and, um, you know, kind of urged us to have the conversation about where we wanted to take our careers. In parallel with where, what I had been experiencing and what I was thinking, um, Courtney was actually kind of in a similar space. Um, she most recently had spent about 10 years as a managing director at WeatherGage, um, a boutique venture fund of funds. Um, and she, you know, an exceptional team, exceptional performance there. Uh, she was one of a five-person team with three investment partners, and uh, they had raised four funds, deployed four funds um, in, a, in a breadth of venture partnerships. And when it came time to raise fund five, her two investment partners uh, were a bit more advanced in their careers. Um, you know, everyone came to the decision that, you know, we're, we're not going to raise the next fund. We're going to kind of be good fiduciaries and, and do what you do to manage the relationships through LPs and GPs and and um, but not go out and raise more capital. So as a result, given where Courtney was and, and what she wanted to do, she um, kind of picked her head up and was trying to figure out, hey, how can I um, kind of focus on what I'm most passionate about, which was also emerging manager. She had uh, you know, a wealth of experience focused there in her prior role and knew that it was emerging managers where she wanted to spend her time, but also it was emerging managers that were driving the alpha in venture. Um, and so when we had kind of this conversation about where we both wanted to take our career, it turned out that we both saw the opportunity in a very similar way, albeit from different vantage points. So we talked about kind of the world of venture capital and LPs. So we kind of defined that, but you know, this is kind of like an interesting thing with Recast where you're a fund of funds. So why does Recast Capital need to happen? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so Besides just the, you know, enabling that path to greater diversity and venture, right, which we feel very passionate about, uh, by focusing on emerging managers, you are generating the alpha that folks are looking for from their venture portfolios. And, and a, a platform like Recast, and specifically our fund investment strategy, should exist because we kind of create that institutional grade intermediary for access to emerging managers and venture. Uh, and by that, I mean, for many institutions, they are structurally constrained in how and where they can invest. And by that, I mean check size limitations, um, you know, breadth of team, 
um, time, right? Efficiency of the time of the team that they do have um, and political risk, right? Um, oftentimes people don't want to take um, the political risk of investing in a name that nobody recognizes yet, right? And so an entity like Recast can help solve many of those structural constraints and still allow them to gain that diversified access to emerging managers and venture that we believe is so critical to a well-built venture portfolio, right? They can give us a Perhaps it's a larger check, and so we can diversify that check on their behalf through our, our vehicle. Um, perhaps their, their team is constrained in terms of time or size, and we can be that extension of their team, kind of their arms, their, their eyes and ears um, out in the field, kind of be that information advantage to allow them to kind of get that exposure to uh, who we believe to be kind of the next generation of emerging managers in venture and be that flywheel of who we believe to be the blue chip names of tomorrow, right? So they can get that visibility and, and eventually go over the top and build out their uh, venture portfolios over time. Um, and then, of course, political risk. We, you know, what we do best is leaning in early and with conviction and and, um, you know, we can oftentimes do that and, and move very quickly on behalf of our limited partners where that may otherwise have been more challenging for them. Um, and so we, we just felt very strongly that as we were building Recast, this institutional grade intermediary, you know, really needed to exist in order to solve that very specific problem. And, and by doing that in that way, we're also creating a, a really interesting channel of capital for these emerging managers that oftentimes, you know, as we touched on, um, have a very difficult time raising capital because of the, uh, the challenges of finding the right LPs as, as they grow and um, you know, great opportunities, absolutely, that um, perhaps Recast can find, given our focus on this space, spending 100% of our time here, um, and we can do that on behalf of our, our LPs. So, um, you know, excited to kind of create this strategy where we can support a greater set of folks as they think about not only kind of getting the alpha from the space and venture, but also kind of buying into the diversity strategy and helping kind of move the needle within venture broadly. Well, I think of the role of an LP it must be a difficult one, like a pension fund where you want to have a diverse portfolio to create the greatest return for the pension fund, yet you can't be everywhere at once. So that must be like why Recast is helping with that diversification of assets. Yes, absolutely. I think it's a, you know, with one allocation to Recast, you can kind of get exposure to a wide set of opportunities, um, you know, with diversification across subsector, across geographic exposure, um, you know, sub, uh, excuse me, um, stage to some degree. I mean, we are focusing a lot on the early stage, but you're getting kind of that pre-seed seed, some series A as well, with perhaps some, some uh, later stage opportunities as they arise. Uh, but it, it really is a way for them to kind of get more bang for your buck, for a, for lack of a better phrase. Um, and certainly with the size of some of these larger institutions, um, they even if they they wanted to go direct, it can often be very difficult just because of the, the check size constraints. Right. And so it's a, it's a way for them to kind of tackle that challenge at the same time. So how do you decide which firms, you know, because if it is growing by leaps and bounds, how do you decide which funds to invest in? Sure. So, so for us, you know, we, it really comes down to does this GP or GPs have good investment judgment and will they be good stewards of you know, others' capital? So how do we think about that? Um, we want to see some level, the expertise that that GP brings to the table, whether sector or operational, 
um, is mapping to where they intend to be investing, right? So that's relevant experience to what they're what they intend to do or, or what they're trying to look for in the founders that they support. And then we need to understand, given that, we need to understand, you know, how do I get comfortable and confident that these this GP or these GPs will identify the best companies in that space, given their given their expertise, their lens, will win those deals based on who they are and what they bring to the table, and then we'll provide you know, such exceptional post-investment value add, whether around the board table or otherwise, um, where, you know, it really gets to that flywheel going of entrepreneur referrals, um, where you, know, you kind of, that, that benefits your sourcing strategies over time. Um, that's what gets us really excited. Um, certainly, you know, having some level of a track record for us to sink our teeth into is a critical component of understanding investment judgment, right? But but we are happy to roll up our sleeves and look at a fairly, you know, nascent, unrealized track record. Um, whereas, you know, for a long time, I think the the idea of track records are, you know, seven to ten year institutional track records with realizations, so you can can throw it in a spreadsheet more easily. Um, but but when dealing with emerging managers and certainly those coming from perhaps non traditional backgrounds, um, you really need to have kind of an open aperture of how you think about it and and be willing to look line by line to get comfortable with with the various assets in their portfolio to, to get a sense of their investment judgment. So certainly more work, but well worth it given the return potential. Now you and your co-founder Courtney uh, started Recast uh, last year. I think it was June timeframe. You know, we're in a midst of a pandemic, right? So uh, people, I'm going to, I'm going to make a, just a guess here that people probably said, what are you thinking? You're crazy. Yet fast forward a year plus later, the numbers are through the roof as far as record number of VC investments and valuations. There's minted unicorns daily. It's it's uh, quite extraordinary what has happened over the time frame that you started Recast Capital. So, what what are your thoughts on the current state of you know the the venture industry and these valuations and uh, all these funds being created and uh, you know you're seeing exits in different vehicles like SPACs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. <laughs> so yes, the, there's been so much additional capital brought into the venture space. Um, you know, late valuations are fluctuating like crazy. Uh, it's been a wild ride, certainly. Um, but you know, where we're focusing, we actually believe is very attractive, despite some of that um, those fluctuations and despite some of the the volatility uh, at the early stage. You know, by by investing in that pre seed seed you are somewhat insulated from some of those later stage fluctuations in valuation, right? In fact, in some cases, early stage investors can benefit from that when they take money off the table uh, at those stages. Um, and and that, you know, that being said, certainly even more modest exits mean very substantial fund level returns at the earliest of stages as well. So we believe there's a lot of attractive reasons to be focusing at the early stage, regardless of what's happening in the um, in some of the later stages. Uh, we're still exci- very excited to be, be spending time there. But to your point, yes, lots of funds now are, are spending their time in this space. So it's quite noisy. And finding the signal in the noise is the job, right? So if that's where you want to spend your time, we have to be an incredible picker of the GPs in order for our strategy to work well. Um, and so, you know, that's given our backgrounds, given where we're spending our time, that's that's what our LPs are looking at from us, right? We're we're spending 100% of our time here. Um, and by doing so, you know, we believe that we can find the signal and the noise 
um, better than many. And um, you know, really what it comes down to is finding contrarian good, right? Which can oftentimes look like contrarian bad. You know, you really want those truly differentiated strategies um, with GPs that meet many of the, the criteria that I had mentioned earlier, um, but picking is essential. Now, an, an initiative from Recast Capital is the Recast Enablement Program. So what are the details on that? Yeah, thank you. Um, absolutely. So Recast, at Recast, we're building a platform, right? And today there's kind of two fundamental pillars of the business. The first is the fund investment strategy, as we've been discussing, focused on emerging managers with um, a, a diverse partnerships. Uh, the second pillar is the enablement program. And the enablement program is an educational program for emerging managers in venture. The idea of the enablement program um, really came about by some conversations that Courtney and I had. And, and you know, at one point we looked at each other and said, look, you know, we believe deeply in our strategy. We believe deeply in the returns that it can generate and the impact it can have on venture broadly. But we're making a handful of investments a year, right? Roughly. And you know, is that moving the needle enough? And you know, the answer, frankly, was no. And so we said, okay, well, what can we do with our very institutional LP backgrounds to kind of help support more managers and hopefully move the needle even more so? And so that's how the concept of this program came to be. So in our fund of funds, we intend to provide very kind of personalized hands-on support of our managers. Each manager is going to need something um, different than the rest. And we, and we want to kind of be that, that first call when, when support is needed. Um, but was there a way we could productize that in some way and offer it to a greater set of managers? And so how that came to be was let's work on a cohort-based model, roughly 12 weeks, twice a year, where we work with 12 to 15 managers at a time, where we can bring in our friends from the GP and LP community and you know, really help address hot button issues that emerging managers face, like largely in and around fundraising, of course, since that's oftentimes the greatest challenge that many of these emerging managers have. But our goal was to make it as inclusive as possible, um, such that those, even with very non-traditional backgrounds, could kind of get that hands-on support that's that's really necessary in order to accelerate their success in market. And so um, we, through some partnerships with our sponsors, were able to really keep the program not only with some exceptional services, such as executive coaching and other things, but offered all at no cost. So it is a tuition-free program, which we feel is so important in this space, um, such that, uh, you know, it's just possible for a wider set of folks to participate. Um, no, you know, warm referral or introduction is required to apply. Um, and, you know, just really happy with the way that that has kind of grown over time. We actually ran the beta of that program in Q4 of last year and are currently wrapping up our first kind of publicly facing cohort, but technically second cohort that we've had. Uh, and it's just been a, it's been wonderful to watch the managers that we've supported grow over time. And, you know, we're still learning, we're still iterating, um, trying to make our offerings as exceptional as, as we possibly can. Um, but, you know, we're excited to kind of take those learnings and apply it to the next cohort, which we hope to open um, in the fall. And, you know, taking it one step further, we also felt very strongly of kind of democratizing access to the information that even these managers have in the, in the program, um, could we do something even, even more? And so that, uh, with that, we launched a publicly facing resource library that's available on our website 
so that um, even more managers could have access to unique information in, in building and growing your venture firm. Um, all of it publicly available, written by you know, wonderful um, thought partners in the space, experienced LPs and GPs, um, where they had published their materials elsewhere. We kind of aggregate some of that um, so that it's kind of a one-stop shop, easy to find, as opposed to kind of going from, from site to site to find what you might need. Very, very cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a great initiative. It's uh, like you said, uh, Recast is doing an amazing job, but there's only so much in terms of the vehicles that you're invested in. So if you're uh, you know, helping educate and influence other emerging managers, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's exponential in terms of what can happen. So, all right. So I'm excited to talk to you about this topic because this is something I've never discussed on the VentureFizz podcast. And it's something that I've always wondered. How does one start a VC fund, right? You always hear about, hey, this firm just raised their, you know, their first fund, hundred million dollars, two hundred million dollars, whatever the number is, that doesn't matter. How does one actually start a VC fund? Yeah, I mean, so if, as you kind of think through what what makes for a successful fundraise, um, there's there's certainly a, a number of elements, right? And I'll, um, but I think you know, it really comes down to thinking about your strategy and how it maps to your expertise, right? Building it. It's so much about storytelling and sales and kind of talking about what it is that, that you bring to the table. That's truly different. Um, the emerging manager space right now is a sea of sameness and setting yourself apart is incredibly important. Um, so coming up with a strategy that is authentic to you and your expertise is, is critical. Um, you know, certainly, for, for those that are building out a, um, you know, coming from perhaps a non-traditional background, so are kind of building this from a different perspective than those that may be a career investor spinning out of an existing shop to raise their own fund. Those are kind of two very different paths that will likely lead to that fund being raised. Um, for those that are coming at it, you know, uh, from a bit of a different angle, it's critical to think about how your quote unquote experience and track record reflects your investment judgment and ability to pick companies, right? Because that's really what limited partners are trying to understand. They want to get comfortable with that expertise that you have. Um, if perhaps you don't have a more traditional track record, right, that's coming from an investment shop, um, there are certainly some interesting uh, and, and possible ways to help build that track record over time, um, you know, at a very high level, uh, certainly angel investing, um, you know, investing your own capital into companies, uh, even at a very modest level to show that, um, you know, you've been able to identify and, and win allocation in some of these really interesting companies. Um, if you're in a position where you don't, you're not independently wealthy, which of course that's the, the majority of us coming at this, right? Um, you know, other ways in which you can build a track record include perhaps scouting for an established venture fund, um, investing via kind of syndicates, um, you know, and, and even taking it one step further, it's providing support to entrepreneurs, right? Perhaps you're you're a mentor, an advisor to companies, right? You're not you're not necessarily investing capital, but you're investing sweat equity and and your time, right? And and it, those those management teams, of course, will will sing your praises and and can express the the great work that you did um, once you were supporting them, of course. And then their success will translate to you know you spent your time with with a winning company. So kind of crafting the ways in which you can really showcase your investment judgment is incredibly important to that as well. Um, so two kind of key things to think about as, as you want to build a venture firm. 
So if you're an entrepreneur, you're trying to get a warm intro most of the time to the VCs that hopefully will meet with you and maybe invest in your company. Is it the same process for an emerging fund? Like, how do you know which are the, uh, you know, LPs that you should be contacting? And is it usually a warm referral that puts the new fund on the radar for that GP or LP, I mean? Sure. So it's a very similar in process in theory, um, uh, but just as some entrepreneurs' networks don't include venture capitalists, <laughs> um, some venture new kind of emerging managers, managers' networks don't include limited partners, right? And certainly if you're that entrepreneur coming from outside the, the venture bubble to begin with, right? And so um, things to think about broadly, whether you're coming from inside or outside uh, the industry is product market fit, right? So for the type of funds you're raising, what types of LPs would be interested in it? And by type of fund, I mean, um, you know, the areas of focus, perhaps there are strategic LPs like corporations that would be really interested in that. Perhaps there are family offices that, you know, made their money in this area and can be very value add and are looking for opportunities in the space in which you're investing. So that's, that's one way of thinking about it. Size of fund is another way of thinking about product market fit. And by that, I mean, um, limited partners investment strategies vary widely in terms of check size, right? Oftentimes they're, you know, unable to write a check below a certain level, depending on how large that organization is. So, you know, if you're raising a $20 million fund, approaching a large public pension that doesn't write checks less than $50 million is not exactly the appropriate fit, right? Um, more often than not, emerging managers raising more modest fund sizes are raising largely from high net worth individuals and family offices, right? Because they can be opportunistic, they're flexible, they can write smaller checks, um, but that tends to be a lot of legwork and, un and uncovering those opportunities and, and those relationships if you haven't already, because, you know, many, many, um, high net worth individuals and family offices are, are difficult to, to find, right? They're private and they, they don't, you know, their information is, is difficult to uncover. Um, so oftentimes you find yourself deploying a, a cold strategy, right? So, uh, and I would say to folks, do not be afraid of cold emailing, cold calling limited partners that you think are the right fit in terms of product market fit for your strategy. Um, certainly other ways of, of getting in front of folks could be kind of LinkedIn connections, right? Find someone who can make that warm introduction to your point earlier. Warm introductions anywhere are, are so beneficial at just kind of rising to the top of anyone's you know, inbox. Um, but that being said, if that's not possible, which is the case for, for many, um, don't be afraid to do the cold email. But, but think about it through the lens of making sure it's worth your time and it's an efficient process and that you're targeting those that are the right fit for your fund. Got it. Uh, what, what about returns? What, what are the expectations for LPs? Like, uh, you know, for VCs, it's like, oh, we got a you know, 10X on that investment or you know, we really hit a grand slam, right? So what are the expected returns for LPs? You know, I think it varies widely, really. I mean, I think that there are there are folks that will invest in venture funds because it's an interesting space for them. They're a later stage investor. They're doing it for an information advantage as opposed to a, a specific return. And then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, there are sophisticated endowments and foundations that, 
you know, employ their portfolio strategy that requires, you know, very specific um, IRR or, or multiples on invested capital for them to um, feel like that investment strategy was a win. Um, you know, I think it, a lot of it will also depend on if that investor is looking at an earlier stage strategy or a later stage strategy. Um, you know, oftentimes earlier stage strategies, the, the return potential can be higher um, as opposed to a later stage opportunity when you're investing kind of at larger valuations or closer to exit events. Um, so it's a wide range, certainly. And it will, it, it's very much a wide range. But, um, you know, venture is an opportunity for people to really look like, look for those kind of exceptional return opportunities, which is kind of what got me back to focusing in the emerging manager space. Because as you think about who is generating the top returns in venture broadly, it's no longer a stagnant list, right? It's not the top, or it never was, um, you know, the top handful of venture capitalists, right? Those top 10 slots are, are changing all the time. Um, and that's been verified by, you know, very um, well-trusted third parties, Cambridge Associates and others. Um, and so, you know, it's those earlier fund size, or excuse me, earlier fund iterations and smaller fund sizes that are tending to put up those numbers that people are looking for from their venture portfolios, right? Those really exceptional fund returns um, where um, in some of the, uh, some later stage funds or larger funds, those, those types of returns can be more difficult to access. All right, let's switch gears here. Uh, some fun questions. So three apps you can't live without <laughs> so I'm building a business today, Recast is a new entity, right? Um, I am, uh, as cliche as this may sound, I'm 100% focused on productivity, anything that can make me more productive, more efficient. So, you know, I'm going to hang my hat on those things that I open a thousand times a day, our CRM, Airtable, Slack, you know, the things that I just uh, make me um, more efficient during the day. Those are the ones I can't live without right now. Got it. Okay. How about other, uh, like, book recommendations, podcast recommendations that you'd have for, for venture fizz outside of venture fizz. Of yes, course. that's a great one. Um, the, the, the engineer in me is still alive and well. So, um, you know, podcasts like how it's made something that I, I still find extremely interesting. Um, you know, uh, another big favorite of mine was uh, serial, um, and other kind of true crime type podcasts and, and books are, are things that really, um, I find really interesting, a big page turners, right? A nice, uh, a, a certainly a break from, from the types of things that I look at on a day-to-day -day basis. What else do you like to do outside of work? Uh, well, I have three daughters, so they keep me very busy. Okay. Um, what ages? So I have five-year-old twins and okay. I have an 18-month-old. Outside of family stuff though, I would say that um, other things that keep me busy or, or things that I like to do outside of work. Um, I'm a big kind of family history buff. Um, I had mentioned that my, uh, my grandfather and uh, my grandmother immigrated to the U.S. Um, when my, my father and my uncle were still quite young. Um, my grandmother at one point actually wrote a book about my grandfather's experience uh, in Europe during World War II. Um, he's a survivor of the Holocaust, wow. and he has a. She wrote his entire life story um, in in a, a novel, and so I'm working to actually um, translate that from German into uh, English. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's a. It's, I think it's nice for our entire family to have. Um, certainly. Uh, but he, you know, my grandfather passed when I, when I was quite young, certainly before my, my siblings were born and um, just was a, uh, 
a part of our lives that we never got a window into. And so this book to me feels like it's a, a way piece of him, right? That's still there. Well, it's so amazing that that story was captured. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my grandmother was a teacher and um, enjoyed writing forever. And she actually submitted a number of poems and whatnot to be published. She was an aspiring writer for a very long time. And so this was something that was very um, close to her heart, but also something she really enjoyed doing. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and all the great work you're doing with Recast Capital. And of course, you know, the topic that I've always wondered about the, uh, you know, how do you start a VC fund? So thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.